Last week in Matthew chapter 9, we, we learned that if you have Christ, you have joy. If you have Christ, you have joy. Jesus challenged the works orientation of the pharisaical law-keeping system, right? And he called us to recognize that in faith in him, we are not called to a funeral, but to a wedding. And that what it means that he has come is that joy is now available to us. He has introduced this, this kind of contrasting theme that even though life can be challenging, that there is joy available to us right now because he has come. And of course, he explained that by using those common images of, uh, of the wedding and then talking about the wine and the wineskin and so on and so forth. Well, as we think about that truth, it's one thing to say, if you have Christ, you have joy. It's another thing to actually live it. And if we're going to be transparent, we'd have to say this morning that there are a lot of different threats to our joy. Now, last week we focused on the threat of the works orientation, that that can steal your joy by putting the burden on you to try to earn God's favor. And that's not gospel. There's no grace in that. It's just you working off a debt, and and it doesn't work. But that's, again, not the only threat we face that might steal our joy. Life is hard. We are painfully aware of that this week. We face financial difficulties, don't we? We face emotional and relational difficulties, We face those challenges at school or at work that make our lives such a pain. We face tremendous challenges in our marriages and in our families. And perhaps maybe more than all of those, as hard as those are, perhaps a greater threat to our joy can just be physical sickness, long-term disabilities, and of course, death. When we or those we love face death, We struggle to see the goodness of God in that. It's hard. But my friend John Newton reminds us that the sicknesses to which sin has subjected the body are emblems of the more dreadful evils which it has brought upon the soul. He's saying sickness is a symptom, the disease is sin. Sickness and death are the symptoms, but the disease is sin. In light of those realities, which Jesus knows full well, how can he say that he's called us to a wedding? How can he, how can he teach us if we have him, we have joy? There's, there's a, a kind of a, a rub here. There's a, some friction between these two ideas, the present reality that we face walking through difficult challenges in our lives and the reality of what Jesus has presented to us. The fact is Christ has come. And Matthew's concern in his gospel is to show us that, that because Jesus has come, the kingdom of God is accessible to us right now. It's not yet here in its fullness, but the kingdom of God is accessible to us right now because Christ has come. And that changes our approach to our daily lives and struggles. And so what we have in Matthew 9 verses 18 and following is just, it's just an epic run of miracles. Now, these are some summaries, like some some selected miracles. Several of them happen on the same day. But the fact is, we've got this run of miracles where Jesus is making a very important point. And as we listen and as we kind of hear this narrative, we will be encouraged, I think, to trust Christ, even in the midst of the challenges and the difficulties that we face. Jesus is not blind to our struggles, and he's certainly not insensitive to the very difficult 
to challenges we face and suffering and sickness and mourning and death. But there's more to the story. So let's see what happens here and see what we can learn from these really remarkable instances. We're in Matthew chapter 9, picking it up in verse 18. And Matthew tells us, as he was telling them these things, these things about joy, the newness of the gospel, right? As he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, my daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Now, let's just pause right there, okay? So we're in Capernaum. Jesus is ministering in, in the new, you know, his new headquarters town. Uh, this is a Jewish town, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And as he was doing this teaching, right, and dealing with the Pharisees and uh, correcting the faulty assumption about true spirituality being marked by sadness, right, as he was telling them these things, one of the synagogue leaders comes up to Jesus and bows down before him. And this guy is in panic. He's come to Jesus because he's heard about the miracles that Jesus has done. And he comes to Jesus because tragically, his daughter has just died. Now, right away, right away, we are summoned into a context of grief and sorrow and mourning. It's not just death, it's untimely death, which is wrong. It's, again, it's, it's evidence that sin has broken this world. And so here his daughter had gotten sick and died, and he's, he's absolutely desperate for, the, for anything. And even though she's already died, he's thinking, well, I'm going to go to Jesus. Because I've, everybody's saying, look at what Jesus has done, look at what Jesus has done. So he comes to Jesus, and, he, and it's just a remarkable moment of faith, isn't it? Notice what he says in verse 18. My daughter's just, just died, but come and, and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus, if you, would just, you could just touch her. I have faith that, that she would live. She would come back to life. So Jesus and his disciples get up and they follow this guy and they're going to go to his house, right, where his daughter is. They can't even get there before we, introduced, we are introduced to more suffering and heartache. Watch verse 20. Just then, so now they're out making their way to the house. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. If you just pause there in verse 21. So we have one situation where this father is mourning the untimely death of his daughter and Jesus is going to deal with that. And then along the way, we have this woman who sneaks up in, in the crowd behind Jesus and she's been suffering from, uh, from perpetual menstrual bleeding for 12 years. Now, the suffering of that is, is brutal, Add to the physical suffering of that the social reality that you would have been unclean ceremonially, which means you couldn't go into people's houses, you couldn't fellowship with people. I mean, it was an absolute disaster for this woman for 12 years. And so she's desperate for for a cure. She'll do anything. And yet here she's heard of Jesus. So she comes to Jesus and she's like, I don't even need him to touch me. I'll just touch him if I could just, and it doesn't have to be face to face. I could just grab the edge of his robe. I could just be near him. And touch him, then I'll be made well. Again, note the faith of this woman, her confidence that Jesus has the capacity to heal her. In verse 21, she says, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Literally, I'll be saved. I'll be saved. Verse 22, Jesus turned and saw her. And now she's busted, right? She's caught. She shouldn't be in that crowd. She shouldn't be around these other people, perpetually unclean. 
Jesus turned and saw her. By the way, by her touching him, she would have made him unclean by some interpretations of the law. Jesus turned and saw her, and she's like, here we go. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. He turns to this woman, knowing her heartache, her suffering, seeing her faith, and he says, have courage. Your faith has saved you. Relief. Restoration. Cleansing. Healing. He did it. She believed that he could heal him, that he would heal her. She believed that he he could heal her and would heal her, and he did heal her. It's a beautiful moment of the grace of God on display as we see Jesus intersecting with the very real pain of this woman and her experience. But the story's not even over. He's been interrupted. So we pick it back up in verse 23. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. Okay, pause. little piece of background information here. So first century Jewish culture, if someone dies in your home, you would hire professional mourners. Even the, the lowest social status, if you were really poor, you still would have hired at least one or two professional mourners to wail and lament and kind of, you know, announce the death and all of that. So it was, it was a whole big deal. This guy's one of the rulers of the synagogue, so he would have had uh, at least, you know, some financial resources to have hired a bunch of these mourners. And so there they are, and they're playing their flutes, and they're wailing loudly and all that. It's, it's, it's a cacophony. It's just chaos, right? Jesus gets there, and, well, just don't forget what he said, that he hasn't come to invite us to a funeral. He gets there, verse 24, he commands the mourners, leave, he said, because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. Now listen, just so we're all clear, she was actually dead. And you don't hire mourners for someone who's been knocked unconscious or is just asleep. They knew how to check whether or not she was alive or dead. So she is actually dead. And so when Jesus gets there and he says, get out of here, mourners, this is connected with what he taught us last week. He says, I've come, I've come, so that we're not, I have not come to, to bring you to a funeral. So mourning is inappropriate. You got to go. And, and then he says, she's not dead, she's asleep. Now, he wasn't saying she wasn't literally dead. Jesus is saying her condition is temporary and reversible. What? Just like being asleep. You go to sleep, you wake up. Jesus says, listen, I know you think she's dead, But death isn't really a problem for me. I can raise her. I mean, he's suggesting there's more to the story here. They're suggesting there's more going on. And so he commands them to leave. And they laugh at him. They laugh at him. And we don't get all the the, the in-between whatever, but somehow, you know, the synagogue leader's like, you guys got to get out of here. And I don't know if he canceled their payment or what. He might have paid by Venmo. We're not sure how it all went down. But he's like, you got to go. So he dismisses the mourners, right? They got to go. So then they leave. And what's so, it's, just, it's just so powerful. Watch verse 25. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he did just what the dad had asked. Took her by the hand. And the girl got up, raised from the dead. Matthew, we could use a little more detail. 
I mean, sometimes don't you, when you're reading Scripture, don't you just wish, I think I would like to know a little more about that particular scene. We get a little bit different angle in Mark and Luke, but all that to say, at the end of the day, Jesus touches her. The faith of the Father is vindicated, and Jesus raises her from the dead, and she gets up. He says, I haven't come to, to welcome you to a funeral. I've come to give life. And even to physically raise this woman from the dead. Watch verse 26. Then news of this spread throughout that whole area. That is an understatement, okay? Of course news spread from the whole area. Because here's Jesus, and he's not just going around healing normal sicknesses, which in and of itself is pretty effective. You know how popular is a doctor who's well-recommended, right? I mean, it's hard to get those appointments, So here's Jesus, not just healing people with everyday ailments. Jesus now is significantly alleviating the suffering of people with long-term illness, right? That woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years. And here, now we're talking about death itself. The one thing that no doctor can cure. And Jesus says, now it's like sleep. I can wake him up. Watch me do it. I mean, the whole situation has totally transformed that community. And the word spreads Did you hear about this guy who's come? Did you hear about this guy who's come? Did you hear about what he can do? Did you hear about what he's done? And the fact is, we see the common denominator here in this approach to Jesus in this this time of suffering and mourning. The common denominator is faith. The faith of these people going to Jesus. It's by faith that Jesus cleanses us. It's by faith that Jesus saves us. It's by faith that Jesus heals, restores, and even resurrects. It's faith. It's trusting in him. These individuals, they, they, didn't, they couldn't have articulated a really detailed doctrinal statement, but they knew if I come to Jesus and if he would just be willing, right, I know he can do it. I believe he can heal. I believe he can fix this problem. The sorrow depicted here in these two healings reminds us that it's only by faith that we have access to lasting joy. It's kind of like as Jesus is walking around doing his ministry, it's almost like suffering and and sorrows are just kind of getting out of the way. It's like, clear out, clear out, because I'm here. Something different has happened. These healings, right, were temporary. We have to just acknowledge that. The woman with the hemorrhage, she, she later died. This daughter that Jesus raised to life, later she died. We don't know how old she was when she died. So this is a temporary healing. But these healings are a sneak preview of God's kingdom and our eternal reality with Christ. They're a sneak preview of what's coming. No more sickness, no more death, no more mourning. And in these healings, we see what faith in Jesus yields. It yields confidence, confidence that he can do this work and that we are headed for this glorious hope. Specifically, we see there's the removal of shame and the reversal of death. Those are worth thinking about just for a second. The removal of shame. That the, the woman with the hemorrhage, her shame, public shame, social stigma, right? That, that was a reality in her daily, uh, daily life. And the fact is that when she came to Jesus in faith, he, just, he removed it by healing her. He solved the problem. He took it away. And that's just, I think, uh, just a hint, just a little reminder to us 
that when we come to Christ, he does remove our shame. He takes it away. We're not clean. We're unclean for a myriad of reasons. We are not clean spiritually. And yet when we trust in Christ, we are made clean. It's so weird because when you read the Old Testament law, if you touch something that's unclean, you become unclean. But with Jesus, it's the other way around. When he touches someone who's unclean, they become clean. He removes the uncleanness. How? By faith. Faith is that connection, right? When we trust in Christ, we're talking specifically now of the root of the problem of sickness and death fundamentally, and that's just sin, and we all have it. But when we trust Christ, he removes, yes, the penalty of our sin, but he also removes the shame for our sin. He takes it away. I don't know where that that woman went, but she went with a smile on her face. Her shame had been removed. It's not just a removal of shame, though. It's also the reversal of death. No more mourning. You know, by faith, what we have in Christ is resurrection. Now, we have resurrection to spiritual life. That's instantaneous. So when you come to faith in Jesus, you are raised to newness of life spiritually. It's a done deal. You were dead in your sins, the Apostle Paul says, and then you've been made alive with Christ. Awesome. But that reality is just one part of what we have in Christ. Because one day in the future, at at the day that God knows, we will literally be raised to life. Death has no claim on us. Jesus, who raised that daughter from the dead, one day he he will raise us. And so this, this record here in Matthew 9, it just reminds us that this is what Jesus came to do. He's removing the source of the problem, sin, and therefore dealing with the issue of death. By faith, Jesus cleanses, saves, heals, restores, and resurrects. And brothers and sisters, can I just remind you this morning that you need every one of those activities done for you. We need cleansing. We need saving. We need healing. We need restoration. And one day, should the Lord tarry, we will need to be resurrected. Praise God, he will do it. There are three ways that we interact with sin. One is when we sin and we harm others. The second is when others sin and they cause harm and pain to us. But the third is generic suffering, where we just suffer because we live in a broken world. And that's really what's more in focus in these scenes with Christ, where he says, yes, here's the reality, that people get sick and they die untimely deaths. But the fact is, if you're overwhelmed by sorrow, pain, tragedy, long-term illness, or even death itself, the message is clear. Look to Jesus. Look to Christ. He has come, and it does change things. It doesn't mean that the short term will be suffering free, but it does mean that God is doing something different. He's doing something bigger. What? Well, let's keep going and see because Matthew kind of, he lets us see how this plays out in a bigger picture in verse 27. There's more healings. We're not even done yet. Verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. Okay, so here Jesus now officially has paparazzi around him all the time. That's where he is in his ministry, right? So now he's healing so many people. So now these blind guys, two blind guys find out he's there and they're like, point us to Jesus, okay? And, they're, and because they're blind, they think, you know, they're in the, the neighborhood, but they're just calling out loudly. 
Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, have mercy on us is we, we would like to be healed, right? That's what they're asking for specifically. But they use this messianic title for Jesus, son of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, back in the Old Testament, God promised King David that one day one of his descendants would reign forever. And since that time, Israel looked for the son of David, the descendant of David who would be the one who would bring, bring to pass all these promises. And so, of course, David had all these sons, and as the, the lineage continued on, you know, nope, not him, nope, not him, nope, not, not him. Well, here, these blind men have figured out this isn't just any guy, this is the guy. The guy that has been prophesied about in the Old Testament, the promised rescuer, savior, deliverer, he is the son of David. Now, these blind guys were smart. They knew that what Jesus was doing was fulfilling specific prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Specifically, not just 2 Samuel 7, that's pretty generic, but specific things listed in Isaiah chapter 35. It's really interesting. In Isaiah 35, there are specific kinds of healings that are listed there that God will do when he comes to rescue his people. And these guys have no doubt latched on to that reality. And they're saying, this is the son of David. He can heal us. Guess what's described in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, amongst other things? Healing the blind, giving sight to the blind. So they're like, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Verse 28. When he entered the house, uh, his, his house, the headquarters there in Capernaum, when he entered the house, the blind men approached him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Now don't run too quickly past that. What did Jesus say before? Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. Here, do you believe? It's the same root. To believe is the act of faith, Right? Jesus says to these guys, do you believe that I can heal you? Do you have faith in me? And of course, they say to him, yes, Lord. They're there for that very reason. They've identified him as the Messiah. They say, yes, Lord. And then verse 29, then he touched their eyes, saying, let it be done to you, or let it be done for you according to your, what does it say? Faith. It's by faith that Jesus is doing this work. And so, because they have believed in him, they've trusted him, he heals them. Now, just something kind of interesting happens after this healing in verse 30. Matthew tells us, and their eyes were open, right, immediately. Then Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. Okay, well, yeah, so what's going on? Jesus understands that at a certain point, his claim to be the Messiah and the fact that he is the Messiah will lead to his crucifixion. And there's a timetable for that in the divine plan. And so he's not yet right at that moment. And so he tells them to kind of keep it on the down low um, because he doesn't, he's not ready to go to the cross yet. It's not quite time just yet. But even so, the fact is that this information was kind of hard to keep hidden. Verse 31 but they went out and spread the news about him throughout that whole area. Fail. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Just pretend you're still blind. What? No. Get to it. I, I think what's going on here, it's not just, of course, Jesus' concern for the timing of the crucifixion. Absolutely, that's in play. But I think the fact is, I, I think there's a little bit of a, a wink here. That I didn't call you to a funeral. I, call, I called you to a wedding. I've come 
So it's time for celebration. It's time for healing. It's time for provision. And good luck keeping that a secret. Don't tell anybody you can see, (laughs) right? No, there's no way that was happening. Of course, Jesus knew that. But the fact is, here's this, this emphatic moment where now he's doing the things Isaiah prophesied the Messiah, the son of David, would do. It's not a mistake. That's Matthew's point here, I think, in, in the second half of chapter 9. It's that Jesus fulfills his kingdom promises. All the things that everybody was looking for and wanted based on promises in the Old Testament, Matthew's like, yep, he's here. This is it. He's the one. And don't miss the fact that it's by faith in Jesus and it's by Jesus' touch that all this healing and restoration and resurrecting is happening. He's the one. Which, of course, means not only is he the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, but that, really, he's the divine Messiah, which was promised in the Old Testament, although many didn't expect the Messiah to be God in the flesh. But here we're finding confirmation of that very fact. Jesus is fulfilling his kingdom promises, and he was doing it right before their eyes. Now, it's really crucial we understand something very important. Okay, it's not that if you have enough faith, then Jesus heals. That's one of the ways these uh, healings are misunderstood and misapplied, where people think, oh, well, God will heal every disease all the time if you would just have enough faith. That is not the point here. As I told you, these healings were temporary, okay? It's not like, oh, if you have 10 points of faith, then Jesus will heal you, but if you have seven points of faith, then he's not going to heal you. That's not how it works. The question here is, who have you put your faith in? Or what have you trusted? And the the common thread in all these healings is that these people came and they trusted Christ. They trusted him. It's about the object of your faith. And when you trust Jesus, he does this work. Healing, resurrecting, cleansing, saving. Jesus fulfills his kingdom promises. If we look in Isaiah chapter 35, and I I put these verses in your bulletin because they're so important this morning. Listen to what Isaiah says the Messiah will do. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool and the thirsty land springs. In the haunt of jackals in their lairs there will be grass, reeds, and papyrus restoration, life, healing. This is what the Messiah will do. And as Jesus is performing these deeds, it's not just that he generically is kind of a good guy. It's that, no, he's actually doing the things Isaiah prophesied he would do. In fact, Matthew makes such a big deal about it. In verse 30, where he says their eyes were opened, he uses the literal same wording from Isaiah 35. Same words. Like, this is it. Just so we're all clear, this is what Jesus is doing. He fulfills his kingdom promises. This is not pie-in-the-sky thinking that Jesus will remove the circumstances of suffering and death. He will do this work. And what's happening in Matthew 9 is that, again, it's this, it's this sneak preview. It's the, the, the work has started. His kingdom has arrived, although it's not here in its fullness yet. And so the question is, well, what about you and I? Will we trust Christ in the meantime as we await the full arrival of his kingdom? 
We're not going to avoid pain. We're not going to just pretend that we're not hurting. That's not what we're called to. But in the midst of pain and hurt, in the midst of significant trial and suffering, we look to Jesus. Why? Because he fulfills his kingdom promises. And what he did in Matthew 9 is just one little taste of what we will experience forever in the new Jerusalem. This is where we're headed. Matthew presents us evidence of rock-solid reality, what Jesus does. Which means, at the end of the day, you got to trust him. you got to put your faith in him because he's the one fulfilling these promises. It's no one else, and it's nothing else. Now, I think it's important to just acknowledge that as Matthew emphasizes faith here and faith in Jesus resulting in this saving work, right, as we see that on display, we just have to recognize that we're often tempted to trust or to put our faith in other sources of healing or other sources of satisfaction or provision, right? So if we're thinking, well, where do I go when things are wrong? Where do I go when I really need help? That kind of answers, where is your faith? What are you trusting in? So the fact is that we may think ultimately what we really need are better politicians. We know we need better politicians. Are you kidding me? That's self-explanatory, people. But the fact is, if we put our faith in, in a government or system or a politician to, to make us happy and give us peace, I hate to be the one to tell you, you'll be disappointed. You'll be disappointed. Because none of them are fulfilling God's kingdom promises. They can't do it. Or we might trust in medical care. If we just had the right doctor or the right vaccine or the right medicine or the right treatment, if I could just get that, then my problems would be solved. And listen, good medical care is a blessing. And praise God for when it helps us and when it works. But fundamentally, they still haven't figured out how to raise the dead. They can't do it. But Jesus can. Jesus can. So trust him more than your doctor. Maybe it's the diet. You know, if you don't eat foods that are infected with whatever, then you'll whatever, whatever. Good food is a good thing, absolutely. But don't think that your diet is going to rescue you or working out or whatever it is. I mean, whatever it is, right? Just substitute in the latest thing, right, that everybody's into. If you just wear hokas, they will save you, right? I mean, that, it's like, it's like it's, there's always a thing. There's always the next thing that's going to that's gonna provide whatever it is. It, no, none of those products, none of those people fulfill the promises of Isaiah 35. Jesus is walking around. He's just doing everything. He's healing all the problems. He's not even done yet. We're not even done yet. Watch what happens. You need one more? I'll give you one more. Verse, 30, verse 32. Just as they were going out, that's the blind guys who can now see, they're just leaving the house, right? So just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. Oh, okay. Isaiah 35. Ding, 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 ding. Right, here we go. We've got the mute. Possibly also deaf. Depends on the context. But here we go, right? He's demon-possessed. He's unable to speak. He's been brought to Jesus. Verse 33, I love this. When the demon had been driven out, no drama. Jesus is like, yeah, you're done. Matthew doesn't even, Matthew doesn't even describe it. Demon out, gone. Demons flee the power of Jesus. As the creator of the universe, sovereign Lord, he's like, we're done, we're out. Yeah, they're gone. So the demon had, when the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd 
The crowds were amazed, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Don't, again, don't run too, too quickly past that verbiage, okay? Israel has been waiting for something like this. 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 35, Genesis 3. I mean, Israel's been waiting for the Messiah, the rescuer to come, but they've never seen one. Even Elijah and Elisha, two prophets renowned for the miracles that God did through them. Even Elijah and Elisha, who both, by the way, raised a dead child, right, who had passed. They they didn't do it with the simplicity and power that Jesus did. So Jesus is like an upgrade from Elijah and Elisha even. Like no one has ever done anything like this in Israel because Jesus is the Messiah, the one who fulfills God's promises. They were blown away. And, and they're, it's like people are getting there, some more quickly than others, but they're getting there. They're going, wait a minute. All this stuff that's happening, it sounds familiar. And, and they're struggling with it, right? And then they're going and they're asking their local, their local rabbi, their, the local Pharisee, the, the expert in the Old Testament, is this guy really the one? Now, this is where we get into some trouble because not everybody responds to Jesus fulfilling God's promises in a positive way which is surprising on the one hand and not so surprising on the other. Watch verse 34. Watch what happens. But when the Pharisees, excuse me, but the Pharisees said, he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Now they couldn't deny that Jesus was doing this work of healing people. And so they just said, you know what? He can't be the thing. He can't be the Messiah, the real deal. So we got to discredit him. Uh, he's probably just doing it by the power of Satan. And this is, I think, in my personal take on this, this is what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Okay, where this is actual miraculous work that God is doing, and you're saying, no, this is actually Satan at work. This is, these guys are done. They're like, they're like we're not having it. We're not going to follow this teacher. We're not going to believe that he is the Messiah. And so there was confusion on the popular level because all the religious leaders or most of the religious leaders were rejecting Jesus. This reminds us something very important this morning, that your greatest threat isn't sickness. Your your greatest threat isn't demon possession. A believer cannot be possessed by a demon. Your greatest threat isn't losing your ability to hear or see or walk. Your greatest threat isn't even death. Your greatest threat is unbelief. Your greatest threat is looking to Jesus and saying, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need you. Or even worse, looking to Jesus and saying, I don't need you. You're evil. You're doing the work of Satan. Where here we see, it's so obvious for Matthew. He's like, he's doing Isaiah 35. He's doing it. Now, I think that it is, it is possible that occasionally demons do uh, perform miracles to, to further their wicked ends. But that is not what, happen, what is happening here. And so these guys in their stubborn unbelief are saying, oh, he's just doing that by the power of demons. Don't trust him. Has he done all the messianic miracles? Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, but they're all satanic, right? I mean, that's where they are. They're just, they just don't want to submit. They don't want to follow him. So they're saying no. It's just a good reminder to us that, again, our greatest threat here is unbelief. It's that we'll look to Jesus and we'll think, I don't need him. He can't offer me anything. And Matthew would say, well, what do you got? (laughs) Because whatever whatever your struggle is, wherever sin has hit you, Jesus has it covered. He fulfills God's kingdom promises. 
He's the promised Messiah, and he is actually here in the flesh getting it done. Of course, this impact went beyond just the the local region or that local town. And in verses 35 to 38, we have the summary of the section. It also introduces the next section. But this is important for us to kind of see how Matthew concludes this section. And it reminds us of why Jesus does this work. So verse 35, he, he just says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news, that's gospel, good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. Everyone that, where people brought them to him and he encountered, he's, he's healing, right? So Jesus is going around, and it's like Matthew's saying, it wasn't just Capernaum. He was doing this in all these towns around the, the northwest corner of the lake. He's going around doing all this work, proving that he is the Messiah, fulfilling Isaiah 35, and introducing this news, this good news, what? That the kingdom of God is here. How do I get into the kingdom of God? Jesus says, by faith in me. You believe in me. You trust me. It's my touch that heals. And he demonstrated it over and over again with all different kinds of sicknesses, alleviating suffering, and even, yes, raising the dead. And so here he's doing this from town to town. And then notice the explanation why, verse 36, and this is such a blessing for you and me. When he saw the crowds... He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. If you just pause right there, he sees all these crowds of people. Why are there crowds? Because life is hard. Because we all have issues either that we have done or that others have done to us or generic suffering that we are experiencing. We all have these hurts and pains. And if Jesus were here today offering healing, there would be a much larger crowd assembled to have that relief, to have their, 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 their hurt alleviated. Why does he do it? Why did he come? Why is he going from town to town? Why the teaching and preaching? Why delivering the gospel? Why offering these healings as proof of his identity as the Messiah? Did you see it in verse 36? He felt compassion for them. Don't miss it. This is the word of God, and it's for you this morning. Jesus cares about you. He cares for each of us. And yes, there's a crowd because they were distressed and dejected because of the sicknesses, because of the mournings, because of the hurts, because of the problems. And so here they've come to Jesus and Jesus sees these people and he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And that right there keys us in on a key theme in the Old Testament that Israel needs the true shepherd. And Ezekiel 34 is the most clear instance of the Old Testament where God says, your shepherds are failing you. You know what? I'll just do it. I'll just shepherd you. And God promises that he will, it's so beautiful. He says, I will come. I will rescue the lost one. I will feed you. I will take care of you. God says, I will come and do it. Jesus sees the crowd. He has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he says, this is exactly why I'm here. He's not just a shepherd. He's the shepherd. And he's not just the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And of course, if you know your gospel of John, you know that the good shepherd lays down his life. Verse cheap. Jesus cares. He fulfills his kingdom promises because he cares for us. And it's a little harsh, but we just have to acknowledge the fact 
that when we're going through the different kinds of suffering that we experience, not everyone cares for us the way they should. It's just a fact. Our friends, sometimes they don't pick up on the degree of our suffering. Our families can be insensitive to our suffering. Those closest to us, it hurts sometimes. They, don't, they just don't care as much. Sometimes people don't care enough to ask. But as much as other people fail you, and they will, they will, not always, but they certainly will, as much as they fail you, fail you, you need to know that Jesus fulfills his kingdom promises precisely because he cares for us. So he has compassion on us. Don't doubt his love for you. Again, Ezekiel 34, I will rescue, I will seek, I will tend. Oh, Jesus says, that's why I'm here. That's not all. There's a mission now to spread this news, and that's really where Jesus starts to transition to the next section in his ministry. Verse 37, Matthew says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant. Look at all the need. The workers, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I love this. Jesus tells the disciples, you need to pray that God will prepare and equip people to go and spread the good news of the kingdom. And he knows they are the answer to that prayer. And if you doubt that, come back next week and we'll see it in chapter 10. He's like, okay, now go harvest, right? But the fact is, this does kind of let us see there's a broader mission of Jesus's disciples that continues to this day. And it's not a mission of going around and setting up temporary healing sites where we're going to heal people and raise the dead. The disciples did have that authority briefly to establish the validity of the gospel and Jesus' claims. But the fundamental mission they had was not to heal. It was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And that work, as we see in Matthew 28, continues on, even today for you and for me. So if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you are called as a follower of Jesus to make and mature other believers, to share the gospel with others, to see them come to faith and become a disciple and encourage them along the way that they would grow in their faith. Why? Because Jesus cares. Because he cares for the lost. Because he came for those distressed and dejected. And if he hadn't come, we'd be hopeless and we'd wallow in our suffering and sin until we die. But the fact is, as believers in Jesus, we're comforted by the gospel. And even on days where it hurts bad, we look forward to what is coming because he fulfills God's kingdom promises precisely because he cares for us. You will have opportunities this week to show the love of Christ to others. Don't blow it. Do it. Care. Have compassion. The people that don't, that don't know the Lord yet in your workplace, in your school, they are hurting. They're sheep without a shepherd. And you have an opportunity to say, hey, maybe not everybody cares, but I know Jesus cares. And because Jesus cares, I can care. I can, I can show some love and care for you. And then how do you care for them? Well, deliver them some good news. The good news that Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 has at least partially been fulfilled. <laughs> that the blind, the blind were healed. The deaf could hear. The demons were cast out. That the dead were raised. And that one day, one day, Sin, suffering, sickness, long-term disability, you name it, and even death itself will be gone. Why? Because of the rest of the gospel, Matthew. Because the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. Because Jesus died to pay for our sins. But he didn't just die. 
He rose from the dead. That's why he's better than Elijah and Elisha. That's why he can grab a girl by the hand who's already dead and raise her from the dead. And that's why when he says, all who trust in me will be raised to life, he means all who trust in me will be raised to life. And that's why the apostles were going around teaching this crazy thing that if you trust in Jesus, yeah, you'll die. But when he returns, you'll be raised from the dead, raised to life, never to die again. When we read passages like this, we sometimes can get twisted and we can get frustrated and say, well, why doesn't Jesus heal my problem right now? But don't miss what's, what's on display here. What's on display is the fact that Jesus is the one who fulfills his kingdom promises and these sneak previews will be the reality for everyone. This is where we're headed. Why do we need to know that now? Because life is hard now. And so your best tactic is to trust Christ. It's by faith in Jesus that we are saved. It's by faith in Jesus we're forgiven of our sins and it's by faith in Jesus that you will be raised from the dead. So whatever you're facing this morning, I know, I know for many of us, it's significant. Trust Christ. It's his touch that we need. One final note here. If you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to encourage you that this is the gospel. This is the good news of the kingdom. The good news is not a promise that Jesus will solve every problem immediately, Right? The good news is the promise that by faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you can have the confidence of being welcomed into God's family and enjoying eternal peace and rest with him forever. That's the promise. And if you're wondering why should I trust in Jesus, the answer is in Isaiah 35 because he's the one who fulfills these promises because he is the son of David who, guess what, has mercy on us. I mean, when push comes to shove, we can have so many resources that we look to for alleviating suffering in the short run. But at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, all we have is Christ. And guess what? He's all we need. Would you pray with me? We'll praise Jesus for fulfilling his kingdom promises. Lord, we thank you so much for Matthew chapter 9 and especially this final section, Lord, where we see these miracles that you performed as moments of tenderness and care and compassion. Lord, we see you bless this family who lost a daughter. We see you bless this woman who had been suffering for over a decade. Lord, we see you alleviate and heal the blind. Lord, we see you cast out the demon and give the mute the ability to speak. Lord, we see all these miracles and we know that there are so many more that weren't recorded, but we see these and we see them as evidence of the fact that you are the son of David, the promised Messiah who fulfills your promises to bring your kingdom to earth. And Lord, we come to you this morning as people who suffer, who are facing death, Lord, who are hurting. We ask that you would help us to trust you, to look to you in faith. Lord, we see that it's your touch that heals, and so we come to you. And Lord, we do ask that you would alleviate our suffering in the short run. We ask for that gracious provision. But Lord, fundamentally, we praise you that we can be confident in your kingdom work, that one day you will return, that the dead will be raised to life, and that those who have trusted in you, Lord, will be welcomed to your kingdom and live at peace and at rest. 
In the meantime, Lord, help us. Help us to look to you in faith, to trust you as we go through the ups and downs of life, especially as we face significant suffering, Lord. May we not lose joy, but may we cling to this gospel. Lord Jesus, we praise you for dying for our sins and conquering death and resurrection. Lord, be glorified as we respond to your word today, we pray. In your name, amen.